welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. I want to begin a very short series with you. Um, I'm going to do the series morning and night for the next, uh, for this week and next week. So there are four messages in it. Um, I know that many of you don't come at night. You might, if you are so inclined, um, get the podcast because there will be two messages in the series that that you will that you will miss. Um, I've called the series "It Ain't Necessarily So." Now, the title of this short series actually is a song that comes from an opera called Porgy and Bess. Um, I don't know if you've seen the opera, maybe you've, maybe you've heard of it. It was a very famous opera written by George and Ira Gershwin uh, in 1935. And you're saying, and you expect me to know that, um, only you would know that. You, that would have been your 21st birthday about then. Um, no, I wasn't born then either. But I do recall having heard of the opera, Porgy and Bess. Um, this song, It Ain't Necessarily So, was a song sung in the opera by a character called Sportin' Life who happened to be a drug dealer. And in the song, what he does is he expresses his doubts about some of the statements and stories that are found in the Bible. And there's a line in the song that goes, the things that you're liable to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so. And as I was thinking about this series, that title sort of came to mind. And what I'm hoping to do in this short series is to look at some things that are widely believed in Christian circles, things that I think amount to kind of unchallenged truisms, urban legends, if you like. Um, Urban legends, by the way, are stories or concepts that get passed around as facts, and more often than not, they're accepted without any questions and are passed on, and they kind of have a habit of taking a life of their own, but in reality, they ain't necessarily so. And so what I plan to do is look at some things that I think are widely accepted in the body of Christ, but I'd like to ask a question. Um, are they necessarily so? Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of aware, and I want to be careful in doing this, that I'm probably raising some 66-year-old questions to people who aren't 66. And maybe, maybe I'm throwing out some issues that I've grappled with for years that some of you are not grappling with. If so, just let it run like water off a duck's back, but I am hoping that it it will resonate with some of you. It wouldn't be a real problem if these urban legends were relatively harmless misunderstandings, and some urban legends, of course, are. But the urban legends, the things that I think ain't necessarily so that I want to touch on, can amount to really dangerous errors that ultimately can lead to real heartache and terrible disillusionment when we base our lives on them, when we make major decisions according to them. And I've watched people over the years of my ministry actually forsake God and forsake faith because of the disillusionment that these ideas created. And they felt, they thought that God had broken promises that I'm going to suggest to you that in reality he probably never ever made. Some of the spiritual urban legends that we will look at are a bit like fool's gold. You know, at first glance, they look 
the real McCoy. They looked authentic, but once tested, they proved to be worthless. And the first urban legend, the first thing that I want to look at, I don't really know how to title, but it centers around the issue of faith and how faith is expressed. And the urban myth that I want to talk to you about is, if I've got enough faith, anything can be fixed. I I tried to think of ways of expressing that better and just didn't come up with anything. I think you'll understand as I try and unpack it. I want to start by telling you a story. It's a story that I could tell multiple times with different people actually involved. It's a true story. It involved a woman in a congregation that we pastored, and she was diagnosed with cancer. She was part of uh, a very close um, prayer group, and this prayer group when they heard that one of their members had been diagnosed with cancer, rose to the challenge and began to pray with passion. And by the way, that's laudable and so we should. This woman, I'll call her Janet, that wasn't her name, but I'll call her Janet. She fought the disease valiantly, but as time went on, it was really clear that she was losing the battle, that she was dying. But her friends, without doubt, motivated by deep sincerity, held up her arms and exhorted Janet and the family and all concerned to have faith, to not doubt, and to not give in to negativity. It became clear as time went on that while we should continue to pray for Janet, And while we should look to God for a miracle, even if it was a last-minute miracle, it was clear, however, that Janet and her family really should be having some serious conversations and making some preparations should that miracle not occur. No no serious talks were held. Vital legal documents weren't signed because even talking about those things and raising those issues was deemed to be a lack of faith. It was deemed to be doubting and negative. We've got to continue to believe and those things undermined the faith. Well, the unwelcome inevitable happened and Janet died and chaos and confusion ensued. The faith group the prayer group, they were angry with the church, with us, who in their view had clearly let the side down by not having enough faith, by their negativity and by their doubt. On the other hand, there were many in the church who were angry with the prayer group, who in their view denied the family a chance to say proper goodbyes, to grieve together and to put their house in order. As I say, I could tell that story a number of times with different people involved and far too many times the same result. I, I personally really struggle in situations like that. I remember the days, the weeks after that particular event and others like it where I would agonize over my faith, our faith. Was it doubt? Was it negativity? Were these people correct? Um, Did my doubts and negativity and struggle actually prevent the possibility of Janet and others being healed? As I thought about that, I, 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 I sometimes wondered that my struggle related in part to my very first church experience. 
um, outside the Catholic Church, okay? I'm talking about now charismatic Pentecostal experience where um, we were in a church that was taught a kind of faith that really had to do with being certain that God would do something. So faith was equated with certainty. And we assumed that our faith was as strong as our certainty was. Doubt and negativity were the enemies of faith, and that kind of faith definitely needed kind of positive people, positive confession. So being positive became a crucial ingredient in or even proof of our faith. And so we weren't allowed to say things like, I'm not feeling particularly well, because that was um, a, deemed to be a complete lack of faith. Um, I, I remember my pastor praying for a woman on one occasion, and for those of you who remember these terrible days, all of the praying was done usually by the pastor in front of the congregation with a microphone. What have you come for? Um, you know, I often wondered if people were really honest in terms of what they had come for, how that would have impacted the congregation. But anyway, this lady, particularly on this day, said, I've come because I've got a bad back. So he prayed for her, and then he said, are you healed? And he held out the microphone. She tested the problem, uh, you know, and, and came back and said, ooh, ah, um, no, it's still painful. He said, no wonder with a confession like that, next, <laughs> and simply pushed it to the side. And that was kind of the way we understood how faith worked. No wonder you didn't get healed. You completely lacked faith as exhibited by your negative confession. And so we kind of got this idea that faith was this potent mixture of intellectual certainty, of psychological, emotional willpower, that when properly harnessed, we could pretty much change any outcome. We could move mountains. So we were into positive confession, and we were also into what, I, I don't know what else to call it, but faith-filled imagination. Probably New Age gurus and sports psychologists would call it visualization in our day. We imagined the thing solved, healed, moved, changed, and we confessed what we imagined. Um, I recall in those days going to a conference with a very, very well-known speaker, and he spoke about faith in these kinds of terms, and he talked, he talked about an incident where he was praying for a bicycle. He needed a bicycle to get around his pastoral duties, and so he prayed some time for a bicycle, and then he said the Lord actually spoke to him one day and said, your prayers are far too general. What kind of bicycle do you want? What style? What color? What accessories? So he talked about imagining this bicycle that he wanted, the color, the style, the accessories. In short, he visualized it, he described it, he confessed it, and he got it. Sounds a bit like a bumper sticker I saw the other day, which made me laugh. It said, saw it, wanted it, told grandma, got it. <laughs> some of the faith teachers of that day, and I suspect some of them probably still, say that as long as we pray without doubting, God virtually must respond to us. It's a law in the spiritual realm. So you pray without doubt, with that certainty, you see it, you confess it, you, you get it. And truthfully, there are some passages in the scripture that tend to lean that way. For example, James chapter one, verses five through eight. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask from God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. 
For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So you pray, but you don't doubt. Because if you doubt, you don't get anything. You're unstable. That's kind of how you read that when you read it quickly. Mark chapter 11, of course, in verses 22 through 24. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things that he says will be done, he, he, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Um, you, these are passages that faith teachers use with regularity, and you can understand why you come to that place where if you see it, you visualize it, you speak it, um, enough faith can move mountains. It can move anything. Over the years, I've begun to be more and more uncomfortable with that approach to faith. And I want to suggest to you, without wanting to tread on anybody's toes, that I wonder that this is one of those things that all we were taught ain't necessarily so. Ironically, one of the first red flag moments for me in terms of this journey away from that kind of faith was found in the famous faith chapter in Hebrews chapter 11, not exactly a place you'd expect to find it. For those of you who are familiar with that chapter, you'll know that it outlines and illustrates the lives of great biblical heroes and heroines. And from verses 17 through verse 34, many of these great heroes and heroines of faith are listed, and, it's, and the writer speaks about what God did in them, what God did through them, what God did for them. Um, so far, so good. You know, that's, that's not disturbing. But from verse 35 onwards, things change. And we have another group of people listed who are also commended as great examples of faith. And as I was reading this, it appeared to me at the time that what they endured, which is described in terms like tortured, tried, mocked, scourged, chained, stoned, sawn into, slain, destitute, and tormented, didn't exactly qualify for having your life fixed. That, that faith, which is commended, doesn't seem to have fixed much in their lives. If faith meant positive confession, visualization, and so on, as we'd been told, then it clearly didn't make any difference to the circumstances that these people were in, and yet they are commended as people of great faith. How can that be? Now, I want to be brutal here and also reveal my hand in terms of where I'm going in this talk. I, I don't actually think that God is particularly interested in the fact that we have mastered the art of positive speaking. I'm not even sure that he's impressed by our mental gymnastics of visualization. I don't think faith is actually equal to spiritual confidence, to psychological certainty, I don't think faith provides an impenetrable shield that protects us from life's unpleasant circumstances. I don't think biblical faith is a magic potion that removes or fixes every mess we find ourselves in. I use the word magic there, by the way, quite deliberately. Bronislav Manolowski was one of the greatest anthropologists of the 20th, 20th century. And in his work, he made a very perceptive difference between magic and religion. 
And he said this, magic is a system in which people endeavor to gain control over spiritual forces in order to obtain what they want. That magic is about gaining power in order to dictate to the spiritual forces what we want from them. He compares that and contrasts that with religion, which he says is a system wherein people surrender themselves to spiritual force or forces that they then might be servants through whom that spiritual force or forces can minister in the world. I I suspect that much of our faith talk and practice actually bordered on, if not crossed over the line from religion into magic. I think it's an urban myth that doubt is the enemy of or the opposite of faith and that a person's faith is only as strong as their certainty, as it is free from doubt. We, we made faith, and I suspect that it remains so for many people, about attaining a degree of psychological certainty. I I believe it. I have convinced myself. I'm I'm speaking it. I see it. And it's this element of psychological certainty that I want to put a big question mark around and say, I don't think that's necessarily faith at all. That kind of faith is a bit like the fairground strength test, you know, where you take a sledgehammer and you slam it down as hard as you can onto a button on the platform that sends the strength puck up the tower, and if it hits the bell, lo and behold, you get the prize on offer. And I think sometimes we bring our psychological certainty down onto an issue, hit it as hard as we can in order to make the faith puck go up the tower and we collect the prize. According to your faith, be it unto you. If I can just muster up enough faith. So it becomes for many about erasing doubts attaining the required amount of belief, reaching that goal of psychological certainty. Now, in the original language, faith is made up of a mixture of things, and it does include the idea of intellectual belief. But more importantly, it has an idea of trust. It is related to the idea of trust. It isn't one or the other, it's both, and it's belief that leads to abiding trust. This kind of certainty-seeking faith, the psychological certainty-type faith, concentrates on believing the right things, speaking the right things, believing in the right amount in order to get what is promised. And it tends to make faith psychological in nature, that idea of not having any doubts. I'd like to suggest to you that biblical faith is not primarily psychological in nature, but it is covenantal in nature. So what I'm saying is I think faith is about holding covenant trust, covenantal trust in one's covenantal partner, often in the face of actually great uncertainty. So it's holding trust in someone, not trying to believe something. It's not psychological, it's covenantal. That second list of heroes in Hebrews chapter 11 didn't have their circumstances fixed by confession, by visualization, 
Rather, they were commended because they held on to their covenantal partner in the face of the great trials that came their way. And the Bible commends them as people of faith. Never changed anything. But they didn't let go of their covenantal partner. I believe that's more about biblical faith than this other thing that we were, we were taught. Faith actually is not being without doubt or questions. It has nothing to do with psychological certainty. If you read the scriptures, there's a very strong motif running through them that suggests being willing to honestly struggle with God, to struggle over his word, to struggle with his promises lies at the very heart of faith. Jacob wrestled with God and ultimately he became Israel. Abraham, Moses, Job, Habakkuk, David, and all of the other psalmists, they enter into Jacob-like wrestling with God and they emerge as trusted covenantal partners, as people of faith. You know, for, for all of us, there are times when things happen, whether God does them or whether he allows them or however you view that, things happen that we find difficult, that we find strange. Biblical covenantal faith is about trusting that he is faithful and that he does have the benevolent character he claims to have despite the present circumstances that seem to argue something to the contrary. Abraham's faith that Sarah would have the promised son actually, in my view, had nothing to do with Abraham finally attaining a place of psychological certainty through visualization and positive confession. It actually had everything to do with trusting the character of his covenantal partner, the one who had made these promises. And I suspect that Abraham actually looked at the circumstances and thought, my goodness me, how is this ever gonna become possible? Look at me, look at, look at Sarah. And he didn't just, ah, I believe, I believe, Sarah will fall pregnant, you know. He looked at his covenant partner and thought, ah, Lord God, behold, thou made the heaven and the earth. There's nothing too hard for thee. I, I don't know how you're gonna do this, but I know who you are. I trust the one that I have entered into covenant with. Covenantal faith doesn't require psychological certainty. Actually, it's perfectly at home with ambiguity, with questions, with doubts, and even with complaints. Rollo May, the psychologist, uh, says, commitment is healthiest when it is not without doubt, but it is maintained in spite of doubt. And that's exactly what I'm saying. Faith involves wrestling at times, at times screaming at the void. Read the Psalms. They are not exactly always an example of visualization and positive confession. If you don't believe me, try Psalm 88 for, for, for size. It starts off dark and it ends up pitch black. And there's not a note of hope in it. And God includes it in his holy writ. He says, this is scripture. It's God breathed. Faith involves a commitment to trust and to be trustworthy in a relationship with another person. In this case, God. Whatever doubts and questions arise, and they do, it is the commitment to wrestle with those doubts and questions from inside of the covenantal commitment, rather than making them either a precondition for entering the covenant or a reason for staying outside or leaving it. 
So when the doubts and the questions arise, we stay in and wrestle rather than allowing the doubts and the questions to drive us from or out of the covenantal commitment that we've made. This idea of covenant is really hard for us Westerners to get to grips with because there are so very, very few covenants in our society. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I mean, you probably immediately think of, well, you know, there are covenants in terms of building processes and land and what you can and can't do. I don't think that represents a good illustration of covenant. We, we tend in our societies to think in contractual terms rather than covenantal terms. We're very familiar with a contract. It's a legal arrangement between two people or peoples. And essentially what we do is we place our trust in the binding force of the contract rather than in the person that we are doing business with. So that if I buy a car, I sign a contract that guarantees that I'll get what I'm paying for. What guarantees what I'll get is not necessarily the trustworthiness of the characters involved, but actually in the legal binding force of the contract that we sign together. As long as I make the required payments, I can be assured that I will get what is specified in the contract. And if I don't, I can go to legal redress. Probably the last remaining covenantal idea that we have in our culture is marriage, and yet even in that, we are treating it more and more in contractual ways, with prenuptial agreements becoming more and more common. But, but generally, prenups aside, people entering into the covenant of marriage are clearly putting their trust in each other and not in a legal document. If one of them in that covenantal agreement turns out to be untrustworthy, then the damage cannot be fixed by legal redress or enforcement. In short, people enter into covenants because they trust one another. We enter into legally binding contracts because we do not. God doesn't do contracts. God does covenant. He pledges himself to people, making certain promises, and in return, he calls on them to trust him and demonstrate trustworthy character in terms of those covenantal conditions. He wants from you and I, and with you and I, profoundly interpersonal covenantal relationships, relationships that are characterized by honesty, by trust, by faithfulness, and I think that's the essence of biblical faith. Now, I'm aware, and I've read a couple of them already, that there are the classic have-no-doubts passages of Scripture that might serve to challenge the things that I just said about faith. We, we don't have the time, and I suspect you don't have the inclination to look at them all in any detail, but let me just take a couple of them and run them by that sort of uh, framework of seeing faith in covenantal terms. That passage I read to you in James, let, let's read that again. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who, liber who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Now at first reading, you could read that as don't doubt what you are praying for. Be certain, be, be positive, believe God, have faith. 
It could be conceived as advocating the very model of faith that I've just challenged. Let me read to you that passage again in the New Living Translation, which I think captures it really, really well. It says this, If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for the person with a divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not accept to receive, accept to, expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they're unstable in everything they do. Now, first thing to note about this particular passage is that it isn't about how to pray generally. This is about asking God for wisdom. The context is asking God for wisdom, not just any prayer request that you might be presently thinking of. Secondly, what we clearly have in this passage is not a person who lacks psychological certainty over a particular prayer request, but one who is conflicted relationally. He has conflicted loyalties going on. For this person, it's a matter of who shall I trust? Whom shall I trust? Shall I be loyal to my covenant past partner or should I trust in the ways that the world operates? And the unstable duplicity that James describes here involves a person in a conflicted state of mind relationally, not psychologically. It doesn't picture a person praying about a thing, but wavering about whether God will answer or not. This is a person who's wavering between whether he will remain loyal to God or whether he will, in his own wisdom, seek out some other source whether they will be faithful to their covenant partner and agreement or whether they will turn to the world for their supply. This is a covenantal issue, not a psychological one. We could look at any number of other passages, actually, um, that seem to suggest that faith actually is, in fact, related to the need to be doubt-free, that passage I talked about, you know, moving mountains found in, in Mark's gospel. You know, if you, if you believe and don't doubt, you can see mountains cast into the sea. Well, there's a number of things to be said about this. I mean, first of all, you have to understand Jewish people and Jewish writers make extensive use of hyperbole which is an exaggerated expression. We do the same today when a mum says to the child, I've told you a million times. Hyperbole. You know, she hasn't said a million times, but she's trying to make a point. That passage where Jesus says, you can move mountains. He's not talking about picking up Ruapehu or, or Mount Taranaki. Or, he's not, that's not what we're talking about. It's hyperbole. He's just saying, amazing things are possible. But people take these hyperbole public statements, literally, and, and, and what they do is they transform the principle that's trying to be expressed by the statement into magical formulas. And we, we did it. Visualize it, believe it, confess it, receive it, move mountains. In, in my view, I, I, I honestly think that's mind over matter magic. It's more closely associated to Mary Baker Eddy's Christian science than it is to biblical faith. That kind of so-called mountain-moving faith is so often totally removed from covenantal relational framework. 
And it simply becomes a means of getting what I want, which is what Branislav Manolowski called magic. There's a lot of charismatic magic that has gone on over the years that is just a matter of visualizing it, seeing it, speaking it, creating it. And you wonder where on earth the covenantal relationship is in that. And I'm suggesting you and, to you that in many cases it's not even related. And, and I don't think you can read those passages outside of that framework. You know, when Peter's walking on water and sinking and Jesus says to him, why did you doubt? What is Jesus saying to Peter? Is he saying, Peter, when you walked, you should have said, I can walk on water. I believe I can walk on water. I'm psychologically certain I can walk on water. Suddenly a wave comes up and I'm not so psychologically certain and I start to sink. And he says, why did you doubt? You're doing so well. Or was he saying, Peter, look at me. In the midst of the circumstances, trust me. That's relational. That's covenantal. It's not psychological certainty. It's who I'm trusting, where my faith lies. It lies in a relationship. And when the circumstances rise up before me to swallow me up, I still look at you. And in Hebrews chapter 11, that is commended as being great faith. As I said, I don't want to tread on people's toes and I realize that in this series I have every possibility of doing exactly that. But over the years, I've watched people put their faith in that kind of faith and be brokenhearted. And at the end of it say, you know what? I don't believe God. I don't believe Christianity. He didn't keep the promises that he said he would keep. And I want to say to them, he didn't keep those promises because he never made them. That's not what that was about. He asked you to put covenantal trust in him as a benevolent, kind, gracious God and to be trustworthy in the commitment that you make in spite of circumstances that actually look everything to the contrary. I, I think of those people, Jesus says, great is your faith. And he commends them. Faith is about covenantal trust and trustworthiness. And I want to finish by just saying what Roland May said again so powerfully. Commitment is healthiest when it is not without doubt, but it is maintained in spite of doubt. Great is your faith. So you have doubts. Join the club. So you struggle sometimes. Hey, stand in line like the rest of us. That's, that's normal. That's human. That's being finite. But faith is trusting in spite of, sometimes in spite of. So can faith, faith fix everything? I want to say it ain't necessarily so, okay? Two things, and I'm going to ask the musicians to come while we, I just give these two things. Two, two parts of covenantal relationships in Old Testament times were a meal that was celebrated and gifts that were given. In church life, we regularly come round the communion table, uh, and in most churches, we regularly take up offerings. We don't take up offerings here, but we, we do, with some degree of regularity, say to you, your giving is part of your worship. And I think sometimes in our Western world, because we don't do covenant, we don't understand covenant, we don't ever connect those two things to covenant relationship. But in the Old Testament, 
covenants were, first of all, entered into in the form of a meal. That's why Jesus gathered with his disciples that night, that we call it the Last Supper. And he said, this is the beginning of the new covenant. As he was inviting these people into covenantal relationships, it was initiated with a meal. And then in an ongoing way, covenant partners would eat together. And in eating together, they would say, I'm believing in you. I'm trusting in you. I am still wanting to be a trustworthy partner in this covenantal relationship. So as we come to communion this morning, it isn't just something isolated. It's part of this covenantal kind of thinking that that undergirds all of the relationship that we have with God. We come and we say, Father, with all of my brokenness, with my failures, I want to be in covenant relationship with you. And as I partake this morning, I'm entering into that saying, I know that you're trustworthy. By your Spirit, help me to be trustworthy partner in the covenant as well. And then there's that giving aspect where more often than not in those days, one partner of the covenant was superior to the other and the the one who was the inferior member of the covenant would would give gifts on on a regular basis as an indication of their wanting to be in covenant. And and our giving is the same. It's not just isolated. It isn't done just to keep the machine of of the church rolling on. It's part of covenantal thinking where we say, I eat, I give, I'm in this all in. I'm I'm all in with my brokenness, with my failings, with my shortcomings. I'm in. Help me to be a trustworthy covenantal partner because that's what faith really is about. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.